Now all the water imagery during uh, worship makes sense, right? We're starting a five-week series on Jonah. So as we jump into the book, I want to begin with this question. What's the primary purpose of the book of Jonah? I mean, as the author wrote it, what was the point that the author wanted you and I to take away the original audience? I mean, so many of us have interacted with the story, heard sermons on it. We, we've you know, painted the pictures in children's ministry. There's, I think my kids have something on the wall where there's like a whale and you open it up and there's Jonah in the mouth, right? But what's the point? It, it, is the intended purpose, primary, big, overarching purpose of the author to teach us about the miracles of God? I don't think that's it. Absolutely, it's in there. Absolutely, we can learn about that. But I don't think that's the point of Jonah. Is it to teach about the sovereignty of God, that regardless of what you do, that God is in control and God's will will be accomplished? Is that the primary purpose? No. It's in there. It's absolutely true and we should see it, but I don't think that's the main point. Is the main point to talk about the grace and the kindness, the love and the forgiveness of God? You will absolutely see that in the book of Jonah. You should take that away, but that's not the main point. That's not the primary reason the author wrote the book of Jonah. So why? Why is it? To understand the real reason, the primary purpose, the overarching point that the writer would go and take time to pin it down, we have to understand the uniqueness of Jonah. Ultimately, we have to understand the literary genre of Jonah, genre of Jonah, that would have been cool to say, Right, to understand what's going on here. So Jonah's crazy, unique book. He is a prophet. Now, most of the times when there's a prophet, they receive a word from the Lord and they give it to the people of the Lord. That's just traditionally how it works. Not the case with Jonah. Very rarely does a prophet receive a word from the Lord and speak it about another nation. Jonah's unlike any other. Maybe the only time in scripture a prophet receives a word from the Lord and is sent to people not of the Lord. He's sent to Gentiles, he's sent to pagans. That's his primary message. So crazy unique, unlike any other prophet. Now typically, when we have prophetic literature, what you're gonna see is the, the book of the prophet are the words of the prophet. This is what the prophet received and this is what they spoke and that's the book we get. That's not Jonah. Jonah's not about the words of the prophet. We have very little words from Jonah here. It's actually about the actions of the prophet. This is about what he does, his response. And so what we see is this very different. It's not necessarily prophetic literature as much as it is narrative literature. It's a story, a story meant to teach us something. It's true, it's factual, it's historical. But here's what's interesting. Not only is it just narrative literature, but it's also chock full of irony. Typically, that's not what prophets are known for, is having a lot of irony in their writings, but this one is saturated with it, right? So much so, it's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've... There you go, okay, okay. Somebody went to high school in the 90s, I get it. (laughs) Right, full of irony, so much so that a way we can classify the book of Jonah is of satire. Satire, right? It's it's. Big, it's dialed up. You'll see the word great is gonna be used like 14, 15 different times in this book. So it's factual, it's historical, it's narrative satire. Now satire, you laugh at how preposterous 
preposterous it is, right? Because it's big, it's dialed up, it's extravagant. But at the same time you're laughing, it's kind of taking a shot at you and, and, and revealing a truth. So one person said, the book of Jonah is like an ancient Saturday Night Live sketch, okay? That's the way we should think about it. It's that satire. So a Saturday Night Live sketch, I remember, that is preposterous, it's big, it's dialed up, but it's meant to teach something through humor. It's one where it kind of opens up and the, the person, it's, it's a guy, and he's there with all his boys, he's in the living room, he's watching the football game, right? Got all the guys there having a great time. And so his wife comes and she's like kind of annoying him. And so what he does in the sketch is like he sends her to the kitchen with an activity pack. Here, honey, open your activity pack and do it and just leave us alone. And so you see the wife in the kitchen with like a sticky hand slapping it up against the refrigerator. And she comes back and she's like, is the game over? And he's like, no, sweetheart, it's the first quarter. Go back. She's like, my activity pack's done. And he's like, get another one, right? So he's treating his wife like a two-year-old child. And we all laugh at it and we think it's hilarious because it's dialed up, it's extreme, it's preposterous. But at the same time, it's preaching some truth that there's a lot of men who, if they could get away with it, would treat their wife like a two-year-old. Just don't bother me. Leave me alone. I'm watching the game. Complete disrespect. And so that's what satire does. So satire said this. It's a subversive form that questions the status quo. It unsettles people's thinking and assaults the deep structures of conventional thought pattern. And it aims to make people feel uncomfortable. If Jonah is true, factual, historical, narrative satire, whose thoughts is it looking to unsettle? Whose conventional thought patterns is this book aiming to assault? And who is this book trying to make feel uncomfortable? The answer? It's you, and it's me. It's the original audience. That was to the nation of Israel, but now today, this book, it's aimed at us. Satire, big, dialed up, extreme, extravagant. We're gonna laugh at it, but at the same time, it's taking a shot at us. This book should step on your toes. It should ruffle your feathers. It should get under your skin. If it doesn't, you're not reading it right. That's the point of the author. Why? Because you are Jonah. And I'm Jonah. We all are. So as we're reading this book over the next four or five weeks, I don't want you to be thinking about, you know, your cousin who's Jonah or your kid who's Jonah. You are Jonah. You put yourself in this or you hold a mirror up to your own heart, your own actions, your own thoughts, and that's how you want to look and filter through this book. One of the greatest examples in the Bible of using story to kind of get at somebody and out somebody and expose somebody is the story of Nathan, the prophet Nathan, when he confronts David. So you know David, he's up, he should be at war, but he's not. He sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, has her come, gets her, uh, impregnates her, and then has her husband killed on the battlefield. You know that whole you know, blunder? So God is very displeased with that, and so he sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about it. But Nathan, instead of just coming head on, hey, David, you did this, he's gonna use a story, kind of satire, something big, extreme, dialed up, to get at David. 
So he says this, he walks up to David and says, David, 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 in your nation, your people, this is what happened. There's, there's a, a poor guy and a rich guy. And the rich guy, has got hundreds of heads of sheep, so many sheep, he can't even count all the sheep. And this poor man had one little lamb took almost everything he had to purchase that lamb and he bought it as a little baby lamb and he raised it up. He let it come into the house and he would feed it off the table and he let it drink from his cup. It played with his children. He treated that lamb like one of his own daughters. The rich man has a visitor come and says, you know what? I don't wanna spare one of my sheep for this visitor. Go get that man's lamb. And so the rich man takes the poor man's one little lamb, has it killed, and uses that to host his guest. When David hears this story, he loses it. He stands up and he goes, this man must surely die. He will have to repay this fourfold. And that's when Nathan goes, you're the man. Puts his fingers right in David's chest. Uses the story to bring him in. And then it's a gotcha moment. So as we read the book of Jonah, I hope you hear the Holy Spirit shouting in your ear, you're the man, you're the woman, you are Jonah. Our prayer as we go through this should be this. Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me to the way everlasting. We want to open ourselves up to this and say, God, what's deep in here? Can we push past the shiny flower mound exterior and like really get in here to our heart, to our motives, to our deepest desires? That's what the book is meant to do because let's be honest, you and I, we don't always listen to what God says. You and I don't always do what God asks. You and I don't always act in a manner that's consistent with how we present ourselves. You and I don't always long to be in the presence of God. You and I don't always carry out the mission God calls us to carry out. And you and I don't always want to share the gospel message of forgiveness. My friend, you and I are Jonah. Still to this day, Jews on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they go into the synagogue and they pull up this book and they read the book of Jonah together. And at the end of the book of Jonah, they all say in unison, we are Jonah. So I want us to continue in that tradition, okay? So on count of three, I'm gonna go one, two, three, and you're gonna say, I am Jonah, okay? You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Yes, you are. That's right. Very good. Okay. Now, if you had a hard time saying that or you didn't say it because you didn't think it true, you're like a double Jonah. Okay. You're like super Jonah. You like need this more than anybody here. All right. That's the point. We have to open ourselves up and say that. That's what the original readers needed. That's what we need. Let's go. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid her fare and went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The book opens up. You should be laughing hysterically because it's full of irony, full of satire in the very first line. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Yonah literally means dove. Now, when you think of dove, what do you think of? You think of peaceful, right? You think of love. That's a dove. So in Jonah's name, you're going to be thinking, oh, this is a character. He's a loving. He's peaceful. And guess what? He's the son of Amittai. Amittai means faithfulness, means true, means loyal. So we open up, and if you know the story, you'll be going, <laughs> yeah, all right. He's supposed to be, by name, the most faithful, loving, true, loyal person ever. He's the least in this story. Even with pagans and just, he's the most hateful, spiteful, unfaithful, unloyal character in the story. We rise, go to Nineveh, that great city caught against it, for their evil has come up before me. So someone wrote this about Nineveh. I love this statement. Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. What a statement. So I want you to put yourself, like, what is it like to be Jonah, to be, to be sent to Nineveh. So Nineveh, we know, it's either one of two things. It's either the capital city of the Assyrian Empire or a very important, prominent city, like our New York City. Not the capital, but very important, very prominent. And so he's gonna be sent here. So what, what's Jonah feeling? If you and I are Jonah, let's, let's feel what he's feeling. He's gotta travel 500 miles east by foot on land. Like that's a significant journey. Like no one in those days would kind of make those type of trips and God's like, okay, 500 miles and you should go to these Assyrians. So there's some cost to that. There's some sacrifice built into that. Not only that, but the, the Ninevites, they were Gentiles. They were pagans. They were not worshipers of Yahweh. They were a completely different religion, completely different political ideology, completely different, cult, like so opposite of who Jonah was. They were wicked. It's been described as, as kind of, here's a summary of their wickedness. Polytheism, witchcraft, sorcery, alcohol abuse, and sexual promiscuity. So in my mind, it's just like all the Harry Potter characters at Hogwarts like join forces with MTV Spring Break and like that's what Nineveh is, right? Just this ongoing witchcraft, sorcery, sexual promiscuity, alcohol fest, okay? There's the wickedness. But that's not what they were most known for. What they were most known for was their cruelty and their brutality in battle. They were horrible to their enemies that they faced. We have different kings of Assyria who would kind of write down what they did to the people that they conquered. Here's one, Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria. He said this to someone he conquered. He goes, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. And through his jaw, I passed a rope and put a dog chain on him. I made him occupy a kennel east of the gate of the inner wall of Nineveh. I tore out their tongues and I filleted them. I laid them on skinning tables of Nineveh and I slaughtered them like lambs. I cut off their members and then carried them about as an object for all lands to see. They're horrible, gruesome, despicable. They would decorate their homes with the body parts of their victims. Like gives a whole new meaning to headboard. <laughs> Footstool? 
You know the leg lamp at Christmas story? Right, I could imagine ancient Assyria. You know, one lady has her house redone, redecoration, you know, hey friends, come over and look at it. They come in like, oh my gosh, is that Joanna Gaines? Literally. <laughs> so not only was Jonah aware of their cruelty, it had actually impacted him. It affected him. He didn't just have knowledge of it. His people, his family had experienced that type of cruelty. Less than a hundred years before Jonah lived, guess who came marching on Israel? Assyria. Attacked the people. Could it be that as Jonah walks around his hometown, he sees remnants from the battle, from the war? Could it be that when Jonah gets with his grandfather, his grandfather's able to tell him stories of the actual atrocities of the Assyrians? He just didn't have a knowledge of it. It had impacted him. It had affected him, his people, his land. The best way I can kind of put you in his shoes would be like this. Say we have the horrible uh, a terrorist attack of 9-11. And God comes later to you and he says, you, arise, get up, go to Afghanistan, go to Al-Qaeda, go into the Bin Laden compound and call out against them for their wickedness has come up before me. That's the assignment, my friend. Some of you a little sympathy? with what Jonah has been dealt here, what God's calling him to do, that may be what it is. So here we see verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. So I see again, see the irony, see the satire? He gets up and he's like, nope, this way, right? Goes completely opposite direction. Away from the presence of the Lord, he goes down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid her fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Big irony, big satire here, big extreme reaction. Every other prophet in scripture, a word of the Lord comes to the prophet, the prophet gets up and goes and does it. Jonah's like, uh-uh. And he doesn't just like, like kind of disobey, it's like deliberate, like it's complete opposite disobedience. So Nineveh, 500 miles due east by land, says he goes to Tarshish, 2,000 miles west by sea, like the most opposite you could possibly do. Okay, so Tarshish, it, it, it's, uh, if he's there in um, uh, Joppa, uh, which is like modern-day Tel Aviv. So when you go with me to Israel, we'll fly into Tel Aviv, okay, and just south of Tel Aviv, there's Jaffa, which is a, a translation from Joppa, and so that's where he goes. He goes right there to the Sea of the Mediterranean, he's going to sail past the Strait of Gibraltar, modern-day Spain, and go to this kind of smelting town, Tarshish. It's, it's the end of the known world. Like there's literally, in Jonah's mind, there's not a place that's farther away. It's like the extreme edge of existence for them. And he goes, that's where I'm going. You see the big, see the difference, see the irony in there? So what is going on here? Like, let's try to get inside Jonah's mind. Uh, you know, if we're Jonah, why run? Why flee? Now, Jonah would never say this. And you and I probably never would say this out loud. But practically what he's doing in fleeing is he is trying to be God. 
He's saying, I know better. I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to control the outcome because the outcome you want, it's not what I want. So I'm going to usurp you, God, and I'm going to do my own will in my own way. He is trying to be God, although he and we would never say that. That's practically what he's doing. And I'll give you this, right? I'll tell you the, the whole, the end of the stories, Jonah chapter four, where we get this from. And again, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but look, you've had like 3,000 years to read it, so get over it, okay? Um, here we go, chapter four, verse two. And he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that they would use me for wallpaper. Nope. For I knew that you're a gracious God, that you're merciful, that you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. My friends, Jonah did not flee to save his life. He fled so that God would not save theirs. He wanted them to experience the consequences and the punishment of their sinful actions. He did not want grace, mercy, love, and kindness dispensed on them. He's going to control the situation and control the outcome by fleeing, by getting off assignment, as if he knows better than God. So if we're Jonah, we have to ask ourselves, are there any people you would rather not see receive mercy? Any people that you, just getting into your heart of hearts, you want them to be punished? You want them to pay for the consequences, their sinful actions? Sometimes it's the people we speak about as they, them, those, that group, those that are like politically different, morally different, ethnically, racially different, religiously different. And if we're honest, we go, I probably don't want them to receive God's grace and mercy because we live in a world where it's so much easier to badmouth someone, to belittle someone, to talk bad about them, to talk behind their back than it is to go show them love, mercy, and forgiveness. We live in a world, it is so easy to spit, to spew, to scream, to slander than it is to share the gospel with them. Like what if you could never talk bad about someone until you had first shared the gospel with them? I mean, what kind of world would we live in if that was the case? And so this is what Jonah's trying to do, right? He's, he's saying, I'm gonna control the situation. In a sense, he's saying, I am God. I know better than you. And here's the deal, Jonah, like us, looked really religious. He's of the people of God. He's a prophet of God. And he had probably done so many wonderful, incredible, awesome, amazing, obedient things until what God wants cuts against what he wants. And that's when the veneer starts to show. When the mask comes off, when he's done playing games, he goes, you know what, serving God was fine, as long as God was doing what I thought he should do. But as soon as that script flipped, I'm out. The call to follow Jesus is not to take up your cross and get whatever you want. It's to take up your cross 
and die. Second reason I think he's fleeing is that he's trying to escape guilt. There's this phrase in the text that comes up a couple times. He's doing this to get away from and flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah's not an idiot. He's a prophet of God. He knows the scriptures. Do you really think he's like, I can get somewhere where God can't see me and God doesn't know why I can just totally hide from God? Do you think that's what? No, of course not. Jonah knows Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? I don't think Jonah's trying to hide from God. See, the word flee from your presence, it's the word that means the face of God or the side of God. I think Jonah's not trying to get somewhere where God can't see him, but that Jonah can't see God. Is Tarshish converted? There are a lot of Yahweh followers in Tarshish. Are there temples and synagogues there? God may not yet have revealed himself. So Jonah's like, I'm gonna go escape. I don't want any semblance, remembrance of God at all. And I, I experienced this, like when I was in college, the way I say it was the best of times and the worst of times. And, and, and I was so sinful at times in college. And I was in that sinful cycle. You know what I stopped doing? I stopped going to church. And I stopped hanging out with Christian friends and I stopped doing spiritual disciplines. Why? I was trying to get away from the presence of God. Those things would remind me of my disobedience. And so I was trying to, man, push that stuff away, escape that. I don't wanna think about it. Just let me go live my happy little life over Tarshish without being reminded of my disobedience. You see, Jonah could have just sat down in Israel and not gone. Like, yeah, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna have them. But there's something different. Why, why does he go to Tarshish? Why did he just stop right there and not go? There's more to it, right? He's trying to escape these, these reminders of God. Today, we can escape into so much stuff, busyness, distractions, to try to drown out the sound and the sight of God. And I wonder if we, if we simplified our lives, if we decluttered, if we got back to some spiritual practices and disciplines and just spent time, will we not come face to face with God? And for some of us, that's the most frightening place we could be. Because we may be reminded of his calling and our possible dodging. So I wonder, I worry, I fear that a lot of us may be living great lives having a wonderful time in Tarshish, distancing ourselves, distracting ourselves from our disobedience to God. We are Jonah. Three application questions. I'd love for you to write these down. I'd love for you to talk with your family, your small group, whatever your community is. Would you like really put some time into these this week? Number one, what is your Nineveh? that place that God is calling you to, that's not necessarily easy, that may be difficult, that may be hard, it may be very costly, but it's only achievable through obedience to him. What is that? What's your Nineveh? What's your Tarshish? What's that place of escape you wanna go to? to totally block out, to not be reminded about God at all. And then be honest with yourself. Open up and go, 
What are the boats down at Joppa that wanna take me away? What are those temptations? Right, just be honest with you. Satan's got a port full of them for you. Whatever boat you want, whatever destination you desire, he's got hundreds lined up just to take you away, to escape what God is calling you to. My friend, don't let those ships sail with your feet on them. But maybe say, no, no, no. It may be costly, but it's better to obey. It's better to go to Nineveh, right? This ultimate question, just from these first three verses, I think is this. Would you rather have cheap freedom without God or costly obedience with God? Do you want to live in Tarshish without God? Or do you wanna to go to Nineveh with God? See, this book isn't really a little pat you on your tushy and tell you you're doing such a great job, right? This book's hard. It's meant to cut to our quick, to expose us, to challenge your self-righteousness, to challenge your selfishness, to challenge your half-heartedness, to get at your hypocrisy and to get at mine. But that's not where it's supposed to leave you. Like this book is supposed to punch you in the gut, but then turn around and point you to God. That's the purpose. As Charles Spurgeon would say this, I've learned to kiss the waves. Throw me against the rock of ages. And that's my prayer for you. I hope this book crushes you. I hope it's a tidal wave, a tsunami that comes over you. But I hope that it throws you against the mercy and the love and the kindness and the grace of God. See, as Ron comes next week, he'll finish the rest of chapter one. He'll talk about how the sailors, the storm, even the big old sea monster, they're not instruments of God's punishment. It's like God's mad at Jonah and I'm gonna get you with this storm. They're instruments of grace. God loved him too much to let him go. And so he sent some things in his life to turn him around, to expose some things, to, to bring repentance, to bring realignment to the will of God. And I hope and pray that's what happens with us as we are hopefully exposed by this, as we are Jonah, but then we're thrown back to Jesus and realigned with his calling on our life. So what does that? What are some instruments of grace today? Is it a big storm in the parking lot waiting for us or sailors or big old fish gonna swallow you up? I think one of the greatest instruments of God's grace today is a program at our very own church called Regen. It's not there to punish you but you get in there and some things come out and you get to be honest and take off the veneer and be exposed a little bit and it throws you up against the rock of ages, which is mercy and love and kindness and Jesus. And so I wanted to invite Greg Methvin to the stage to kind of close us out today to talk about Regen and how you could be a part of it. Greg? Thank you, Destin, for your great message. And uh, whether you've followed Jesus or not, we've all gone down to Joppa. And uh, for some of us, we even know the name of the boat that we got on that sent us adrift. Um, maybe that boat's called Fear. 
for you. Maybe something overwhelming has happened that has created some anxiety in your life and makes it hard to fully give your heart and to trust God in these kinds of moments. I know for a lot of people, the boat that they got on was hurt. Somebody hurt them. Um, and sometimes those hurts continue to haunt us long after they have happened, or it, it looks like unforgiveness is the boat that you're on, and you're locked in this place of bitterness, maybe with people that you love and live with, but it, you haven't found the capacity to be released from that. For others, it's a, a habit. Uh, that's the name of the boat that they're on. So something that is secret. Maybe they're not even honest with uh, themselves to say, yeah, this is a problem for me. But deep, deep down, we know this is, this is killing me. This is killing my life. This is killing my relationship with God. Whatever that is. Uh, I'm so grateful that Rock Point has invested in a ministry to go out to sea to remind people, hey, you can get off that boat we can start heading back towards God's best for your life. And I talk to lots of people who say, hey, listen, I, I say, I've said a prayer over and over. God, help me uh, turn it around. I've read books, I've watched videos, but the needle is not moving in my life. Um, but I've got good news, even if that's been your experience. Uh, we've walked with numerous people through Regen who said the exact same thing and have come to find freedom and new power and transformation in their life. Um, we're gonna kick off for adults here in, in a week from Monday. So on August the 15th, we're gonna start a new Regen group. And we're gonna teach you how to meet with God daily in new ways. Uh, we're gonna meet weekly and give you the chance to learn new things about uh, your, uh, whatever the issue is that you're grappling with and how to deal with it and bring it to God. But maybe best of all, you're gonna to get to know people who are safe and supportive and doing their own business with God. And there is something life-giving of just getting out from behind the secrets that suffocate and being the company with other people who are headed to God's best in their life uh, that brings a new power to life. We're really excited because this semester for the first time, we're also gonna offer an opportunity for students high school students who are also struggling in various kinds of ways to be able to find help as well. And we're gonna start that in early September, but we've got a ministry table right out these main doors. Come drop by, you can get some material. You don't have to talk to me. Uh, I'll be happy with Ashley G who will be there uh, to answer any questions that you have about the program. But please sign on our little clipboard so that we can make sure that you're getting all the information about what's happening in this ministry. Um, uh, what if this is your moment to turn it around and experience freedom and power like you never have before? What a gift that would be to your soul. What a gift that would be to your family. What, what a gift that would be to your faith. So looking forward to meeting you and praying with you and helping you in every way that we can.